masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show Carl Wood and Company Side chatters, if you ask me, the best models for reality are ones that put consciousness center stage and acknowledge that this energy is not only a human quality, but something that radiates from all life, plants, animals, and otherwise. In Western society's worldview that non-human life forms are just meat robots running instinctual programs has become the justification for a whole lot of cruelty, destruction, and sometimes even eradication. Yet we are in a small sliver of time and space in which our isolation has made us cold and ignorant, not just in regards to the importance of nature and the power of consciousness, but of course the usefulness of magic as well. So today we're going to talk about animal magic, totems, and occult areas we've yet to fully explore, because these traditions go back as far as time itself, but are completely taken for granted today, ironically within an empire that still invokes the bald eagle as its primary symbol. However, these values live on in indigenous cultures we've yet to disrupt, the pagan communities that still practice the old ways, and they're returning under the guidance of teachers like today's guest, Lupa Greenwolf. Lupa is a naturalist, neo-pagan, and ritual tool-making artist living in the Pacific Northwest. She's the architect and creator of the Tarot of Bones, as well as the author of several great books on these subjects, such as Fang and Fur, Blood and Bone, A Primal Guide to Animal Magic, Skin Spirits, Animal Parts in Spiritual and Magical Practice, and Natural Spirituality from the Ground Up, Connect with Totems in Your Ecosystem. Here to bring us back to nature, school us on animal magic, and help us connect with a totem you won't find on a smartphone screen, an ambassador of animal spirits, professor of neo-paganism, and a master of her domain, Lupa Greenwolf, welcome to the higher side. Hey, thank you so much. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited we could do this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I do too. I've always been really interested in animals and more recently magic, so it's going to be great to explore where they intersect. I guess to kick this off, maybe you can tell us a bit about your particular flavor of magic and how you got into it, because we talked to chaos magicians, astrologers, traditional Solomonic magicians, even Thelemites and Masons on occasion. But I think people will be a little less familiar with terms like neo-pagan, and totemic magic. So give us a little bit of background on you. All right. So I'm kind of an interesting case. I've been pagan for a little over two decades, and my path has taken me in some really unusual directions, or at least it's been a bit of a winding path. So I started out with sort of a generic Wicca-flavored paganism by way of Scott Cunningham, who is a pretty well-known author. He wrote some classic books like Wicca, Guide for the Solitary Practitioner, and so forth. And a lot of people, especially in the 90s, cut their teeth on his works. So I spent a few years doing that thing, and then I discovered chaos magic in the early 2000s and latched onto that for a few years. And then for a number of years, I basically was working towards trying to create a sort of neo-shamanic path using all the various things that I had discovered and learned and put together over the years. And the thing that I found as I was trying to create this formalized path with, you know, rituals and holidays and devotions and practices and all that and, you know, all this dogma, the more I found that it took me away from the things that I really found sacred, which were you know, actual nature itself, you know, physical nature being out in, you know, the woods and the fields and engaging with the world on a one-to-one level. I was really getting distracted by the abstractions and the symbolism that are so prevalent in paganism and which I was trying to latch on to pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. And so I finally, a few years ago, I just said, fine, I'm done with this. 
I'm going to strip everything down and get back to the very, very basics of what has fascinated me since I was a very young child. And that's being outside and learning about the animals and the plants and the fungi and everything else in an ecosystem. And that's where I've found the most inspiration throughout my lifetime. And that's just what I'm going to keep myself focused on. So to me, as a neo-pagan, as opposed to an indigenous practitioner, totems, you know, I'm not Native American. I don't have any background in that. So what I practice is very different from what somebody from an indigenous community would practice. But to me, a totem is an archetypal being that embodies all the qualities of a given species. So, for example, I don't just work with bear because there are eight different bear species on the planet. And, you know, polar bear is a very, very different being from sun bear. And most people, when they think bear, they're thinking like, you know, grizzly bear. And they don't think of the things that make each of these species unique. So a lot of my practice is very much about working with the totems of individual species. The other thing, and I really, really want to emphasize this, is that as a naturalist pagan, I don't really believe in the supernatural per se anymore. I think that things have natural explanations. And rather than trying to prove that all this stuff exists outside of my own consciousness, I am perfectly happy with the fact that right now all the evidence points to all these being existing within the highly complex and beautiful terrain that is my conscious mind and and various levels of my consciousness. If I find evidence otherwise later, awesome. But I want listeners to understand that you don't have to literally believe in all these things in order to work with totems and spirits and so forth. You can also take a completely symbolic perspective, but you can also take it literally if that's, you know, what you choose. So I want people to understand that what I say here is not wholly writ and you're welcome to take and use as much of it as you find useful. And if there's stuff that just isn't useful to you, great, you know, leave that by the wayside. (laughs) Well, I think that's a great breakdown. And of course, I'm reminded of Lone Milo Duquette's book, It's All in Your Head. You just have no idea how big your head is. And just that idea that all of reality could be in our head. We really don't have a good proper model of consciousness interacting with reality when it comes to the mainstream. You know, you have to go to these alternative places where they even recognize consciousness, let alone how powerful it might be. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, no, and I think that's a really, especially in paganism in the last several years, there's been this real push to try to scientifically validate people's beliefs. You know, we spend a lot of time being told, oh, we're crazy because, you know, Many pagans believe in spirits and magic and so forth. And, oh, that's just crazy talk. And it's, you know, people in general have a whole bunch of beliefs of all different sorts that can't really be scientifically validated. But I think sometimes we've looked to some of the, you know, sort of more experimental ends of physics and so forth to try to give ourselves some kind of validity in the world because just saying, hey, I believe this doesn't seem to work for everybody. The problem with that, of course, is that we then take little bits and pieces of science that sound good, and we try and shoehorn them into our beliefs in ways that really aren't appropriate. For example, a couple of years ago, I read a blog post by a woman who was claiming that piezoelectricity was what made crystals do their thing. Now, piezoelectricity is a very specific quality. Basically, if you take a quartz crystal and you apply a little electric shock to it, it will vibrate and it vibrates at a very specific frequency. And this is a physical vibration that can be measured. And if you strike that quartz crystal, you know, give it a physical blow, it will create a tiny amount of electricity. So it's you know either an electrical to a mechanical shift or mechanical to electrical. And this is actually what makes quartz watches work because what happens is there's a teeny tiny quartz crystal inside your quartz watch. And when the battery 
lets off a tiny electric spark, it makes the crystal vibrate, and that's what moves the second hand. So this is very specific. It's not that this quartz crystal is constantly emanating energy. It has to be affected by either the electrical impulse or the mechanical impulse. Well, this person was basically saying, oh, yeah, piezoelectricity is the thing that makes quartz crystals give off super magical energy all the time. (laughs) And I basically wrote a blog post talking about how, no, that's really not the case. And can we please stop abusing science? Um, (laughs) Like I said, I recognize that we really, 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 really want to validate our beliefs. But I don't think misusing what scientific data we do have is going to help us either in understanding what we're doing or in making ourselves look more valid. So I think we really need to be comfortable with the possibility that, like you said, you know, we don't know how big our brains are. The mind is a really fabulously complex place. And I think it's a really amazing playground to explore both on spiritual and other levels. Well said. I think that's a great example. I love a good data-based argument rather than one that's just emotional or wishful thinking. And it is really interesting that we do see a high level of consistency of ideas when it comes to indigenous cultures in these types of realms and the respect for nature, respect for animals and the type of practices they engage in. And we're obviously pretty sure they didn't have any contact with each other. So it seems like some of this is the kind of natural conclusions people might come to without the imposing Western structure. But I do think anyone who has pets has probably really wanted to get into their heads or at least recognizes that animals seem to be more aware and lucid than we give them credit for. I've watched my pets dream quite a bit. I also sometimes wonder if my cats can see spirits based on how they act. But I'm curious just generally how you fold plant and animal consciousness into your worldview? How do you see these non-human persons experiencing the world? There's a wonderful quote by Henry Beston that I absolutely love. And it goes like this. We need another and a wiser and perhaps a more mystical concept of animals. Remote from universal nature and living by complicated artifice, Man in civilization surveys the creature through the glass of his knowledge and sees thereby a feather magnified and the whole image in distortion. We patronize them for their incompleteness, for their tragic fate of having taken forms so far below ourselves. And therein we err, and greatly err. For the animal shall not be measured by man. In a world older and more complete than ours, they move finished and complete, gifted with extensions of the senses we have lost or never attained, living by voices we shall never hear. They are not brethren. They are not underlings. They are other nations, caught with ourselves in the net of life and time, fellow prisoners of the splendor and travail of the earth. Mm -hmm. And I really love that quote because we tend to be, we tend to be exceedingly anthropocentric. We are very human centered. And that's even when we mean well. One of the things that we really have to keep in mind when we're dealing with other species of animal, because we ourselves are animal. We are Homo sapiens sapiens. We are the only remaining human ape. You know, yeah, we have big brains, we have opposable thumbs, we walk upright, but we're we're still apes. So we tend to really try to shove other animals into our way of seeing the world. So whether we're judging wolves and sheep by, you know, how useful they are to us, or when we misinterpret an animal's behavior by anthropomorphizing it, by saying, oh, that dog is showing its teeth. That means it must be happy. (laughs) There's a lot of videos online of animals doing various actions that are actually pretty serious signs of stress and unhappiness that we misinterpret as cute. I think the one most glaring examples is there's a video of an animal called a slow loris. It's Mm -hmm. a kind of very primitive primate. And they have these sort of raccoon-looking spots over the eyes and little bitty ears. They kind of look like little teddy bears. And there's this video of this guy sort of tickling 
this animal's ribs. And this is an animal you can hold in your lap. It's the size of, you know, maybe a, a large cat. And as this person is tickling this animal, this loris's ribs, it's putting its hands up. And the, you know, the caption, of course, on all the Facebook pages and stuff is like, oh, look, it's so cute. It's being tickled. Aww. And two of the things that people, a lot of people didn't get is that A, that putting the, the hands up thing and displaying the claws is actually a fear and threat display on the part of that animal. Also, that loris almost certainly had its fangs removed because they have canine teeth and slow lorises in the pet trade have their canine teeth yanked out because they, they're actually slightly venomous and also because they can deliver a pretty powerful bite if they want to. So this is an animal that's already been subjected to a great amount of cruelty and has had its main form of defense removed and is now being subjected to greater stress and torment for the enjoyment of millions of people on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And so we get that with lorises. We get that with canine body, you know, body language and behavior. We get that with feline body language and behavior, horses, I mean, pretty much anything. There are so many examples online, I can't even think about it, of people basically trying to say, well, that animal is doing a thing like a human does, so it must be experiencing the same feelings. And that's really not what's happening. So it's not just a matter of, you know, hey, we need to not value animals based just on whether we like them or not. You know, gosh, I hate snakes, so snakes are bad, but, you know, I really love puppies. You know, I think it's really important that we value both the snakes and the puppies, whether we like them or not. I'm not a huge fan of mosquitoes, <laughs> but I really value them both as insects that have persisted as a group for millions and millions of years and have really cut out a niche for themselves. And also because they're really important to ecosystems today, both as carriers of their own DNA and also food sources for other animals. You know, they're, they're really integral. If we didn't have mosquitoes, there'd be a lot more uh, hungry bats out there. <laughs> but it's also important, as I said, especially with people who really, 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 really want to connect with their pets. It's really important that we take that step back and learn about canine or feline or avian behavior on its own merits, as opposed to just making assumptions about what that animal's doing based on what we think it's doing. Well said. And I know exactly what you're talking about with that Loris example. I've seen the video for people who haven't. It is a very adorable creature. But then when you realize that it's actually scared and frightened and you see all the damage done in the animal trade, it is like incredibly depressing when that switch hits and you're like, oh, God, here's humanity just doing what humanity does. And it's just really sad. But I guess how do we better resist that temptation or get more into the animal's mindset when human context is all we have. I guess magic helps. Well, yes and no. Magic is this really, really subjective thing that we put a lot of ourselves into. I think it's really important to do things like meditation. You know, I really love guided meditation as a general tool just because it's a great way to get out of your own head it's a really wonderful way to imagine what it might be like to be, you know, for example, a wolf or a raven or a mud skipper or any of a number of other animals. I've done so many meditations over the years with various totems where they've shown me what it's like to be that particular animal. And I think it's really important to be able to get out of our own heads for a while and explore, you know, to have more empathy for other beings. The big caution that I would give is that even when we are working, and again, this is kind of where I'm, I really caution the whole, you know, this may just be in our own heads thing. Even our own magic and spirituality, even animal-based, is still very heavily informed by our biases as humans. Because there's only so much that you realistically can get out of your own head and perception. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you're still interpreting things based on however many years you've spent as a human being with all of its various conditionings and neurological patterns and so forth. 
So yes, go and do, you know, meditations. Yes, go and explore other levels of consciousness to the best of your ability, but also ground that in actually learning about the animals that you're working with. Because the thing is, totemic knowledge, you know, we, hang on, I've got like 8,000 different thoughts going on at once. (laughs) Sure. Um, So in Western society, we are probably the most divorced from the rest of nature of any society out there. And that includes people who claim to be close to nature in this community. Mm-hmm. Indigenous communities who, whether they still live their traditional ways or whether they have, you know, shifted some to a more Western way of being or had it forced upon them, but the practices and the beliefs that many Indigenous communities have were forged by people who spent every single day living very, very close to the rest of nature, not just in a practical level. You know, we have to get our food from the land and, you know, we have to pay attention to the migrations of animals and so forth. But also, the more you are around something, the more you notice details about it. So, Most of us in the Western world spend most of our time immersed in a very human-dominated, sanitized landscape. But if you spend a lot of time outdoors on a daily basis, you just normally start paying more attention to the animals and the plants and the weather patterns and stuff that you don't really notice when you're in a building all the time. And so... For us to say something like, well, I'm going to work with totems or other nature spirits, we are bringing a very divorced from nature perspective. You know, unless you are spending every day spending some time outside and and being really reliant on the natural world, your experience is going to be different than indigenous people for thousands of years have had traditions that brought them directly in contact with nature. So when we go do something like a guided meditation with, for example, black bear, the totem black bear, we are going to be bringing our general lack of experience with the environments that black bears are found in to the table. So that's going to really affect how that meditation goes for us because we don't have the depth of understanding for the most part of how that ecosystem works or where the bear's part is in it compared to somebody who observes bears on a daily basis. So I think to the best of our ability, you know, most of us are even, even those of us who love nature, you know, I spend as much time out in it as I can, but I still have to do a lot of learning from books and documentaries and classes and so forth, because, you know, I'm not going to be out in the world, out in the natural world enough to be able to sit and watch a single bear's day in, day out activities. Hmm. Whereas somebody who's outside every day in that bear's territory is probably going to have a much better idea of what that bear's daily movements are like because they're neighbors with each other. Do you get what I'm saying with all that? Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. You kind of touched on this, but my next question for you was going to be to maybe get into some more historical context because divorced, like you said, is a pretty perfect term because people forget that even though things like animal magic are considered weird and nonsensical in our society, that is the exception, not the rule. And I guess I would ask if you could tell us a little more about the history of the practices you engage in and just kind of how widespread they've really been. Okay, so there have been multiple cultures over the history of our species that have had animal-based ritual practices. Some of these have been focused primarily on wild animals. More agrarian communities have focused more on their domestic animals as being special. Some work with both. So... There's always been this drive 
to reconnect with the rest of nature, especially, ironically, as we become more perceived to be divorced from the rest of nature. The more we feel we're disconnected, the more I think there's a desire to reconnect. But we don't necessarily know what it is that we want or how to voice it. And so part of what I think modern animal magic practitioners have been seeking is that reconnection. You know, we Mm -hmm. we feel on some level that there's something more than, you know, this very human-dominated world that we live in where everything is about us and everything else is shoved into this little category called nature that ends up on the back page of the paper. Whereas in communities that never really left nature, it's a reaffirmation of their connections with the rest of the world. I think for people like me, it's a deep desire to find something that has been deeply lost in our own communities. You know, as I said, I am a European mutt who grew up in the Midwest U.S. and I'm now in the Pacific Northwest and I was raised by Catholics. And so I didn't really grow up with this tradition of feeling connected to the rest of nature and feeling like the other animals are, you know, my kin, even though I may have had ancestors way, 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 way back when before, you know, Catholicism, who had similar beliefs and feelings. And so I really feel that, you know, for a lot of us coming from a Western perspective who didn't have that indigenous background, we're trying to piece together something that was lost a long, long time ago. And there's the struggle of do we try and borrow from indigenous communities and navigate the you know harm that appropriation can do, or do we try and forge our own reconnections based on our own experiences and biases and worldview? And so I think that's why there's not really a single animal magic in the Western perspective, because so many of us have found different paths to reforging those connections. And also because we tend to come from a much more individualistic community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are just a lot of complex questions and issues of respect that come into it when you really get into these topics. and. I guess, you know, you did tell us how you conceptualize totem animals, but how do you separate totems from other types of spirits? Is it something that's just self-evident to a experienced practitioner? Well, as I said, a totem is an archetypal being that embodies all the qualities of a given species. So we're not just talking about an individual brown bear We're talking about Brown Bear, who is sort of the, for for lack of a better term, the deity of all Brown Bears. You know, Brown Bear watches over every single member of that species that has ever existed and is very much concerned about the protection and preservation of those animals. And so in working with them, for lack of a better term, they just feel bigger and more powerful again, more akin to a deity as opposed to an individual spirit guide. Mm -hmm. It is subjective and it is kind of one of those things where you just have to experience it yourself, but it's pretty unmistakable when it does happen. You know, you'll, you'll know, yeah, there's something different about this particular being, you know, they're more, they're just more. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I've heard them described as beast master entities, which is a term I like that kind of speaks to that same thing. Mm hmm. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's a really, I think however you want to conceptualize it, that's great. I think it's just a matter of understanding that my totem is not a white wolf named, you know, snowflake or whatever. My my primary totem, and, you know, part of the reason that my name is Lupa, is Gray Wolf, who watches over all gray wolves and who is an intermediary between the species Canis Lupus and the whole rest of the world, including humans. And I think that's just so... Fascinating. And of course, a major question has got to be, how can people find their totem animal? I guess, what can you tell us about that? It's more than just picking a favorite animal, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it kind of depends on the person. You know, we don't have a long, long tradition of 
coming of age rites where you go out into the into the deep woods or the desert or whatever the far out wilderness happens to be. We don't send people out there to find themselves once they hit puberty or once they become, you know, an adult or whatever we, you know, where we consider that major threshold. You know, in fact, our, you know, American society in particular is seriously lacking in formal rites of passage, short of graduation and getting married and, you know, things like that. We don't have a lot of introspective rites of passage. So, again, it's a matter of really figuring out things as we go along. So there there are a number of ways in neo-pagan totemism that people try to find their totems. Again, take this with a grain of salt because this is speaking very much from my own biases, but I have ones that I like and I have ones that I don't like. One of the ones I'm not so crazy about is, oh, well, I went outside and I saw this hawk sitting up you know, in a tree outside my yard. And, you know, it's been there for the last week and I've seen it every single day. That must obviously mean that that hawk is my totem. And while, yeah, it's really awesome that you have this red-tailed hawk that's been hanging out in your yard, it's probably not because of you. It's probably because your yard is part of that, a pair of hawks territory, and you've just been in it. <laughs> And you now have avian neighbors. Congratulations. You should see a reduction in the number of mice in your area. (laughs) And so, again, that whole, you know, well, I saw this animal. It must be something about me. It's a very human-centered, selfish way of viewing things. Just because an animal runs across the road in front of you doesn't mean that it's anything special. It just happens to be that, you know, maybe there's been improvement in habitat in your area and there's more wildlife, which is awesome. So it's very much a whole thing of, you know, making things about us. And I I really don't like that. I'm also not a fan of, well, you know, I saw this animal in my dream and therefore it must be my totem. The thing is, our, our unconscious mind is a really crazy place. The conscious mind likes words and concepts and, you know, very rational and straightforward ways of communicating. Our unconscious mind really loves symbols and weirdness. And when the two of them try to communicate, sometimes it gets really strange because most of our dreams are just our mind's way of processing the things that happen to us throughout the day. You know, our fears, our experiences, our excitements. You know, it's it's basically putting everything away in the giant Rolodex in our head so we can find it later. And so the symbolic unconscious part of our mind likes to sometimes pick animals as a symbol of a thing that's going on in our head. Let's take a dog, for example. If I dream of a dog, for me personally, that's usually a good thing because I love dogs. Dogs are awesome. And, you know, I get to play with a puppy in my dream. But for somebody who is absolutely terrified of dogs, maybe they got bitten really badly when they were a kid, having a dog in their dream may be a nightmare. So I don't like dream dictionaries because there's no universal meaning for symbols and dreams. Right. You know, if if I dream of a dog, it's not going to necessarily be the same reason that you dream of a dog. Makes sense. And so I'm really a big fan of doing your own personal interpretation, figuring out, well, why did that animal show up in my dream? And 99 times out of 100, it's going to be because it was a convenient symbol for a thing that happened to you recently or a thing you've been thinking about. That being said, with both regards to dreams and waking animal sightings, if you feel deep, deep, deep down that there's something noteworthy or special about that encounter beyond, oh, wow, I've never seen that animal before, explore it. Explore that possibility. One of my favorite ways of helping people find totems is through guided meditation. I have a very specific meditation that I use. It's kind of basically the same format that everybody else uses, which is you visualize going into a tunnel in the ground. And when you come out of the tunnel, you find yourself in a wild, natural place. I don't tell you what that place is because I want your mind to pick it out. And then you explore that place. And hopefully if things go well, your totem shows up. It gives you just enough structure to shift your consciousness into that meditative headspace where you can be open to talking to your totem or totems for that matter. You can have more than one. 
but I don't like giving people specific, you know, habitats or species because, you know, there are so many animal species on this planet and your totem could be any of them. You know, it's also the reason I don't like totem cards because there's really only so many animals that you can fit in one deck. And what if your totem happens to be an animal that's not in that deck? So I really emphasize guided meditation as a way of finding totems just because it is open-ended and you can use that meditation just to go into the totem spirit world. And say, for example, a bobcat runs across the road and you feel there's something really, really important about that. You can go into a guided meditation specifically to speak with Bobcat, the totem, and ask, well, was there anything to this particular encounter? Was that you trying to get in touch with me? Or did I just happen to have a really rare sighting of this beautiful wild cat? Does that make sense? It does. It does. And so I guess the next step, let's say you do a meditation, you do connect with a totem animal, something becomes clear. What comes next? How do you foster that connection and strengthen the bonds? And what are the benefits of doing so? Well, I mean, one of the things you do is just go back and visit on a regular basis, you know, just like you would with any other friend or ally or relationship. When I do guided meditations to work with totems, I'm not going deep, deep, deep into the spirit realm. I'm basically going into what I perceive as sort of an in-between place between our world and the spirit world. And you can also think of it as a deep in-between place between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind, depending on your perspective on all this. And so it's basically a neutral ground where if I want to speak with that totem or they want to speak with me, you know, it's kind of like having your favorite coffee shop that you go to meet with a friend. You know, it's like that kind of place, mm-hmm. except it's bigger and, you know, it's a good place if the totem wants to show you things or explore things with you. You have the space to do that or if they want to introduce you to other totems. So just going back and visiting and working with them on a regular basis is one thing. Another thing that a lot of people like to do is set up a small altar or shrine to that totem in their home. And the value of that is that it gives your conscious mind a constant reminder of that being and their importance to you. It also shows that totem that you really want them to stay around. You're basically giving them their own place in your home. This doesn't have to be anything especially elaborate. It can just be a little shelf on the wall where you maybe have a couple statues or pictures or other representations of that totem. But it's important because it shows both them and you that that relationship is important. And then a lot of people will call on their totems and other guides during ritual practices, meditations, things like that. And it's basically just saying, you know, hey, you know, again, you're an important part of my life. I'd like you to be a part of this. Even if it's not a totem, for example, if I am looking for work of some sort, I tend to really, I kind of have my go-tos. If I'm job hunting or if I'm looking for another contract or if I'm looking for a good publishing opportunity or something, I will talk to Beaver and I'll talk to River Otter. Or I'll talk to Badger, depending on, you know, what kind of work it is. So I'll talk to these totems because both Beaver and, you know, Beaver's very much about work and, you know, having a good home and stability and so forth. Badger has taught me a lot about persistence and toughness, which is something you really need when you're job hunting. And River Otter does everything with play. So I want to be able to find stuff that, you know, I want to find work to do that I'm going to enjoy. And so I might invite those totems when I'm doing some kind of a ritual to psych myself up for an interview or when I'm about to overhaul my resume or anything else work-related. And I'll ask for their guidance and their help as much as I'm able to. So those are just a few of the ways that we can connect But I think probably the most important reason to connect with totems, and I think the one that gets overlooked by far the most, you know, as I said earlier, I mentioned earlier that totems are an intermediary between their species and everything else, including humans. And because humans are having such a drastic impact on the rest of the world, 
you know, the totems have basically been coming to those of us who will listen and they're trying to get us to pay attention again. You know, those of us in the Western world who are causing the most trouble, you know, the totems are basically casting about trying to get somebody from this highly destructive group of humans to pay attention to them again. Unfortunately, again, because we tend to be so selfish and anthropocentric, we're always thinking in terms of me, 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 what can I get out of it? You know, what can I learn? How can I be empowered? How can I make my life better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing that gets overlooked the most is how do we give back? How do we listen to the totem's needs and their desires for their species? And how do we help facilitate that? You know, people sometimes like to talk about making offerings to the various spirits that they work with. And a lot of times it ends up being things like, well, I'm going to leave food out for animals to help the nature spirits. I'm not sure how that works, Mm -hmm. but, you know, apparently leaving food out for the animals is, is good for nature, even though it promotes those animals becoming reliant on humans for food and It's just really a bad idea from an ecological perspective. Hmm. But really, in my experience, one of the most important offerings you can ever make to any nature-based being is actually working to help physical nature connected to that being. For example, to help a totem, to make an offering to a totem, you do something to help its physical counterparts, whether that's volunteering to help improve that species habitat, whether it's making a donation to an organization that is working to preserve that species and its habitat, whether it's volunteering with an animal rescue, you know, wildlife shelter, you know, that's just some of the things you can do to help those totems. You know, a big part of my personal practice is not drumming and dancing and things of that nature, it's volunteering with local conservation organizations doing things like invasive species removal and habitat restoration and community education, things of that nature. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, I've donated money to a lot of organizations over the years to try and help them facilitate their actions, even if I can't be there to help them themselves. So You know, it's really important to me to emphasize that, yes, if your spirituality helps you become a better person, that's awesome. If your spirituality promotes you becoming a more responsible part of your entire community and not just your human community, that's why I think you've leveled up. To me, one of the signs of an advanced practitioner is they want to give back as much as possible. It's not just about me, 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 me. It's about that interconnection. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And stewardship seems like a natural component to this kind of stuff when you're in that mindset. And I'm just so interested in the minds of animals. And my hope or suspicion would be that to get better insights into their minds and logic and the way they think, that this stuff might be able to be helpful And I guess I would ask if tapping into these beast master entities or any of these animal magic practices have helped you in that regard. Are there insights or examples you could share that other people just might have no context for because they haven't done this kind of work? That's kind of a tough question because, again, as a human being in a human body with a human brain and consciousness and understanding of the world, I'm very limited in how much I'm able to really understand about an animal's world. Even when I do meditations with totems where they show me what it's like to be that particular species, it's still filtered through that human consciousness Mm -hmm. and conditioning and so forth. So I think what it's done for me is helped me to learn to be more empathetic toward other beings and to consider that there are beings that see the world in ways that I don't. I am not a big fan of this whole thing of people who claim that they can talk for animals, people who claim that they're animal communicators. Mm -hmm. I have a really tough time with that because 
I don't know what they're basing things on besides vague psychic powers. <laughs> yeah, it's presumptuous. You know, I, I don't know if they're paying attention to the animal's behavior. I don't know how much they know about the animal's, that particular species' vocalizations. I don't know how much they know about that species overall. And again, you know, I've seen so many people who really, really want to communicate with animals, but they're coming from a very human perspective. So I, I, I really hesitate to say something along the lines of, yes, my spirituality has helped me to understand physical animals more. Currently sharing the living room with me right now in my studio, as I sit here and speak with you, is a 20-something-year-old African gray parrot. He belongs to my housemate who owns this place. She's only here part-time right now. I'm the caretaker of the place, but she brought one of her African greys out here to keep me company and so I could keep him company. And I've never really had experience with birds before. Now, did I go and talk to the totem African grey? Yeah, I did. Just because birds are tiny dinosaurs and I tend to understand mammals better. And I think that experience of going and talking to African Grey, the totem, helped me to remind myself that there are consciousnesses out there besides mammalian ones and that I really need to open my mind to them and understand that their perspectives and their priorities are a bit different than what a lot of mammals may be after. But I think what was more valuable to me in bolstering that was, A, reading up on African gray behavior from people who you know have been living with them for years and years and years, and also just hanging out with this particular bird and getting to know his individual quirks and personality and so forth. So I think that meditation reminded me to keep my options and my mindset open but I don't think it gave me any super amazing insights into, you know, this particular bird's wants and needs. That's something that I had to learn on my own. And if he was having behavior issues, I would be more likely to take him to a parrot specialist as opposed to an animal communicator. Right. So, again, like I said, I, I think the spiritual part of my relationship with nature has a lot of value, but I tend to give it limitations compared to, you know, each part of my life has its own sort of bailiwick and boundaries. And so my spiritual stuff tends to be more based on my personal development. And that includes reminding myself that I am just a teeny, teeny, teeny little part of a huge, amazing universe with all sorts of different beings and places and so forth. Right on. Yeah, it seems very clear that you're incredibly respectful and humble about these kind of things and trying to keep the ego out of it. And another thing I'm really interested in that was a chapter in your Fang and Fur Blood and Bone book is familiars. From what I understand, mm -hmm. these, these are often physical animals that a magician has a strong connection to rather than a spirit animal, I guess. And we see this in movies, like a wizard using animals to fetch something important or to act as spies. Mm -hmm. Is there a real precedent for that in these sorts of practices? I think so, yes. It's not something that you see. So when I speak of a familiar... And also, I want to add the caveat that I have only actually had one familiar, and that's the one that I worked with while I was working with that book. A skink, right? Yeah, she's a barrel skink. And cute little lizard, spent most of her time hanging out under the sand, but, you know, she came out when it was important. She's like me, she's an introvert. And so... It's not just any animal that a magician or pagan or witch happens to own, you know, because I've, I've had other pets and so forth. But specifically, it's an animal who actively makes themselves a part of your ritual practice. And again, you have to kind of have some skepticism, you know, a healthy level of skepticism. 
just because your cat likes to jump up on the altar and knock stuff off doesn't mean that you're familiar. <laughs> but you can definitely tell certain animals when you do rituals or spells or whatever, they will actively lend their energy to the proceedings. You can feel it. You know it's there. And that is, I think, what makes a familiar. I think the concept has been kind of muddied because you know, a lot of the information that we have is honestly from the European witch trials where you had inquisitors and other people basically feeding information to their victims who were basically as Catholic as they were, Protestant as they were, in order to try and get a fake confession. So you get, you know, a witch hunter or inquisitor or whoever saying, that cat that you have, it's it's a gift to you from Satan, and it runs errands for you and your witchy friends, and, <laughs> you know, basically feeding all that information to people. And unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people understand the context under which that information about supposed witchcraft came from. Right. And so, again, this is something like totemism. I basically had to recreate for myself based on the experiences and resources that I had access to. The thing that I found through my own experience is that it's not just any animal. It's, it's an animal who very specifically wants to be a part of your workings. And you can't really... Just because you have an animal that you love does not mean that they're automatically going to be your familiar. If I were to ever to go back to actively practicing magic again, I'm not going to assume that Liberty, the African gray parrot, who's sitting here looking at me with some curiosity, I'm not going to assume that he's going to just step up and be a part of what I'm doing. Right. They kind of choose you. But as I wrote in the book, you know, you can actually go into a shelter or a pet store or wherever else you happen to be looking for. You basically do a ritual before you start the quest for a familiar and you open yourself up to the universe and say, hey, I'm ready. Help me find that perfect animal who's looking for me. And that's how I found, you know, my familiar before. That's really interesting because, you know, I have two cats and both times I went to the Humane Society to pick one, I kind of let them pick me. And both cats ended up putting their, at different times, of course, they put their paw on the glass. And I was like, that's the one. We'll take that one. And I feel like I have a really strong connection to both of them. And, you know, I didn't really do anything magical on purpose necessarily, but I think I was in the same frame of mind that I wanted an animal to pick me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way to go about it. Exactly. And I think that's important to allow other species to have agency, whether that's dealing with individual domestic animals that, you know, we want to find a good home for, or whether that's trying to navigate our very complicated relationships with wild nature and the animals that live there. Again, whether it has been for ill intent, you know, people justifying the slaughtering of large predators because they kill our livestock and therefore they must be bad. Or whether it's for good intent, but ends up being harmful, you know, assuming that my pet chihuahua must have the same food that I do because I would never eat that dog food and neither should he. And, you know, so you end up with a 15-pound chihuahua that looks like a sausage with little legs. <laughs> when we shove our human biases onto other species, it very frequently ends up being harmful to them. And so when we give them some level of agency within, within reason, you know, then we stand to learn a lot more from them. I mean, I'm preparing to build a chicken coop out here because I want to have some chickens. And I'm going to have to deal with the fact that we have a number of predators around here, ranging from stoats to raccoons to black bears, that I'm going to have to protect the chickens from. And so I'm not going to give the raccoons enough agency to get at my chickens, but rather than shooting the raccoons, you know, I'm just going to work to make a stronger chicken coop if they happen to manage to get in. And so I allow them that level of agency of... This is a being that I share my world with, and I'm not going to forcibly change that. I'm just going to nudge a couple things around so that my chickens are safe. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Well, Lupa, I really think this kind of brings us close to the finish line. I'm really glad you were willing to talk to us about this stuff. I love the idea of dissolving the barriers between man and beast by whatever means necessary. And uh, I guess I would also ask before we go, do remind the people of your work that you do and where they can follow up on this stuff if they're still hungry for more or any other projects you got in the works. Yeah, thank you. It's been really awesome being here, and uh, Mm -hmm. I really hope people enjoyed it. I hope you are willing to be patient with me when I get kind of opinionated. If you like what I'm talking about and you want to find out more, my website is thegreenwolf.com. Not Green Wolf, but The Green Wolf. When I registered the domain years ago, someone else already had Green Wolf, so (laughs) I did The Green Wolf. And I'm also all over the place. I'm on Facebook and Tumblr and Instagram and all that. And you can find the links on the website, on the links section of the website. My latest already completed project, of course, is the Tarot of Bones, which is a full tarot deck plus a companion book. You can find information about that on the website. My current project is actually a book called Vulture Culture 101, a book for people who like dead things. And if you're interested in working with hides and bones, this is actually a book on the people who are interested in hides and bones as as collections and so forth, how to find them, how to process them, what to do with them, what's legal, what's not, what to do about ethical conundrums, and so forth. And there's actually an Indiegogo campaign starting on February 6th. So if you want to be a really early adopter of the book, which I want to have out later this summer, you can back the Indiegogo and help with initial printing costs and so forth and get an early copy of the book. So there's more information about that project at vultureculture101.com. So like I said, you know, all things Lupa can be found at thegreenwolf.com. My email's there. If you want to contact me, chat, ask questions, et cetera, feel free to get in touch. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I definitely learned a lot. I really appreciate your perspectives, given how long you've put your attention on these themes. So great work and take care of yourself out there. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And it's really a privilege. Thank you. You got it. Good times with Lupa Greenwolf, everybody. I hope you found something to like about that, something interesting to chew on. I sort of figured it would be great to step away from the dense, heady, political kind of stuff and toss in one of those random topics, and I thought animal magic was a decent one. As a stoner who now works from home, I got these two cats, I got this dog, now I got these fish that live on the underside of our little indoor aquaponic garden, and I'm just fascinated with observing all of them, trying to figure out what they're thinking. And I just find it crazy that someone wouldn't think these animals are conscious so that they don't have emotions and decision-making abilities. So I thought maybe we could explore getting some insight there, since a person who's knowledgeable in animal magic should have a deeper understanding, perhaps, of animals in general. And I think Lupa shared what she could in that regard. Also, the concept of overarching animal beastmaster spirits is pretty interesting, too. I got room in my reality model for that. But I did try a few meditations trying to connect with the spirit animal, too. Why not see what happens? And it's just tough with these things, because I don't know my own mind well enough to know if I just projected something in there, filled in the blank, if an animal came to mind that was random, or if there's something deeper there. But out of my meditation exploration came the gorilla, or gorilla, as Lupa would say. And I don't particularly resonate with gorilla. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Gorilla. Gorilla does not take up a lot of real estate in my mind. But maybe I just need to do it a little bit more. Also, today was a bit of a rare show in that Lupa has obviously changed her mind a bit when it comes to animal magic. That is fine, of course. And I probably should have digested more recent work, and I might have picked up on that vibe if I did. But I dug into her early book, Fang and Fur, Blood and Bone, A Primal Guide to Animal Magic, because it was the most all-encompassing. Her more recent work is focused on one art form, like Skull Scrying or the Tarot of Bones. But it's a fair point that a person can change their mind on things in over a decade's time. But of course, I dedicate a lot of thought to the path I want to navigate through a conversation. So if I'm bringing up something 
that's maybe a six on the weird scale, and she says she might think that it's too far-fetched. I don't really have a game plan for pivoting away from more and more out there stuff. It's all good, it's kind of funny, and I'm sure you can hear it in my voice a few times in the interview. But I guess one of these points was about overtaking of an animal. Now, I don't think that's too far-fetched to project your consciousness into a falcon, let's say. If a person can invoke demons or undergo possession, why couldn't an animal be possessed by a skilled consciousness projector? I guess you don't really need it if we have remote viewing. You don't need to warg into a hawk when you can just project your mind out there, I guess, like a cloud. Remote viewing is a weird thing. Clearly, they're not sending their optic nerve to the location, so it's like... Are we just seeing with our third eye? What can we see with our third eye? What do we really need our two eyes for? I don't know. I think remote viewing brings up a lot of interesting and curious questions, especially since we have data that shows, no, this is a real thing. We just don't know how or why. But remote viewing is one of those ideas that I think is on the spectrum, or (laughs) maybe that's the wrong phrase to use, but in the realm of possibility. So I respect her opinion and her experience. But it is a fairly rare thing to have a guest who's gotten a lot more sobering on the topics in their wheelhouse. I didn't expect her to have moved away so much from what she had written in the past, but it happens. In the Plus show, it came out a lot more because my questions got a lot weirder. It's not a bad thing, but it was a little unexpected. If you didn't hear the Plus show, some of the things I threw at her were shape-shifting and consciousness projection, like I mentioned. The idea of other kin communities, people who think they are part animal, or the reincarnation has some residue from their last past life that was an animal. Interesting stuff. But then also animal parts and skins in magical ritual, animal sacrifice in magic, skull scrying in the tarot of bones, and connecting with plant spirits versus animals. I even asked her how to better facilitate conscious communication between me and uh, Miss Mary Jane. You don't want to just burn it all the time. Sometimes you want to talk to it. But on these later topics, especially when it came to animal skins and materials, I think she knows quite a bit. And I find the idea of energy inside of an animal hide, for example, really interesting. Dr. Stephen Skinner actually highlighted that when he talked about following the grimoires to a T You need to get the material that they tell you to get. You can't substitute animal parts for plastic because the energy is not there. So I think it was great to try to at least take a swing at an animal-centric show through the lens of magic. I hope you agree. Of course, Western society has done a great job of stripping plants and animals from our worldly experience, except for the solitary trees and asphalt prisons that line the grocery store parking lot and the birds hovering overhead looking for something to land on that isn't lined with spikes. So it's probably a good thing to pay tribute to that animal kingdom once in a while. Maybe down the line we'll do it again with a more indigenous perspective, perhaps? Either way, big thanks to Lupa for giving us her time and for keeping it real. Do check out her books and website if you have an interest in these areas. I know she came from a more personal journey type of perspective, but I do think there's a lot of lost knowledge in this realm, so I like digging into it whenever we can find an angle to do so. Alright, so we took a bit of a walk down a path less traveled today, and then coming up next is a hell of a guest, way more in that conspiratorial wheelhouse. I consider him a well-respected name in the alternative community, one of the most respected that hasn't been on THC yet. I like his work a lot. I got some resistance to some aspects of it, but he's a great guy, and I'm lucky to be adding him to the long list of great names that have graced the higher side with their presence. I'm sure you're going to dig it, but that's all I'm going to say about it, except that it's Joe Atwell. So I'll see you then. Your move, animal spirits, spirit guides, and beast master entities of the other world. Your fucking Well, I wonder what it's like to be a rainmaker. It's like to know that I made the rain I saw it in boxes with little yellow tags on everyone And you can come and see them when I'm 
Do if they just did all what I said. 